Fulhamish is backed for the season by Ladbrokes. Hello listeners and welcome to the Fulhamish podcast. My name is Jack Collins and I'll be your guide tonight to all things black and white as we traverse the choppy waters of the Championship Automatic and Playoff race. All our focus was on London derbies this weekend, and while many people might have thought that Fulham beating Millwall 3-0 at the Den was our main concern, we here in the studio know that the big result this weekend was Fulhamish 8, Fulham Focus 4. And with me today are the best centre-back partnership since Hughes and Hangeland. Farrell Monk. Man like Jarman. And Ben Jarman. Man like Monk. I'm also really, really put off by the fact that I've got a big bust of Cristiano Ronaldo staring me in the face as we are at Bleacher Report Studios here, the workplace of the best goal scorer at Fulhamish, Jack Collins. The white Ryan Sessegnon. <laughs> Tapping merchant himself. <laughs> Indeed. Um, well, there's obviously lots to discuss about both of the big games this weekend, but we should probably start at the den. And Farrell, I hear you have some three-word reviews for us. Yes, I've been scrolling three billion of them, and uh, we've got uh, DGAH at 1966FFC, Cahill Retrospective Red, We've got our very own Drew Heatley with 22-22 undefeated. And finally, Kyle Matin at Massive Boy 90, Lions Asleep Tonight. That's a great one. <laughs> one of my favourite ones was a, was a late entry to the, the three-word review contest, which was at Lions, Mitrovic and Wardrobe, <laughs> which, um, which did nearly make the cut, yeah. but we, uh, we decided it was, it was probably a little bit too niche and didn't quite execute as well as the idea expected. 10 out of 10 for effort, though. Yeah, very, very impressive. Um, let's start at the den. Uh, and Ben, it wasn't you know, an easy place to go. And, and you know, it, it seems only fair to, to start with the atmosphere. Um, what were you, what were your thoughts on it? And, and how did you sort of react to, to how the Den set out to play this, Fulham? This is my first time at the Den in, I'd say, probably about a decade or so. Um, and I don't remember it being as fierce as it was on, on that Friday night. I mean, the Fulhamish, uh, the Fulham um, team came out and all of the away end were singing um, about Fulham. And we got completely drowned out by Millwall. It was absolutely unbelievable. I've never been to a ground and been singing my heart out, but not actually been able to physically hear myself for the opposition. Um, the atmosphere was intimidating. It was intense. And I think it really put Fulham on the back foot for the opening 10, 15 minutes, up to the point where Millwall had the goal disallowed. And then Fulham started to slowly but surely eke their way into the game. It was a, a funny one. And also Millwall have a... A huge kind of point this season of scoring early goals. Mm. How much of that is you know due to that atmosphere? Do you think Varro, and how much of it is due to you know teams coming out and being like, "Geez, we're on the back foot here. We don't, we weren't necessarily expecting this." Um, I think there's a few things at play here, and um, you know Neil Harris's team are incredibly well set up. We have to give credit where credit's due, and you can you can now start to see why they have had so many early goals because they start strong and they play to their strengths. What was very interesting from a tactical point of view was how well drilled they were in terms of you know, their decision-making in attacking as a team and defending as a team, but also doing it at the right times as well. There were points in the, there were points in the game where Millwall were really trying to press us high and trying to win the ball, which they were, they were successful at on a number of occasions. But then there were times where they thought, no, we're not going to win this ball here. Let's get back into our shape and make it difficult for Fulham. So fair play to them. Something that stuck out to me was the first sort of like two or three minutes where we were playing the ball out to Ryan Fredericks and he really, really looked uncomfortable. And there was... I think it was the first three or four times that he received the ball, once from Betts, once from TC, and I think once from Ream, and all three times he just completely miscontrolled them or let them go out of play. He was clearly shaken by the atmosphere there, and I think it really put the whole team on the back foot and individual players as well. And we saw them threaten very, very early. I think they had a something. Uh, they had a, a header clear off, cleared off the bar after five or six minutes and then as I said earlier on they had one disallowed after 15 so clearly Fulham were rocks at the start. Something interesting on, on that kind of Ryan Fredericks point that I thought was, was worth noting was that even when Fredericks did get on the ball eventually and, and not miscontrol it he seemed to be faced with two men and as soon as you face Ryan Fredericks with two men he just gives the ball 
you know, back to whoever's passed it from uh, to him. And to see them realise the threat of Frederick so early on and be able to kind of, you know, double up on him on that side was something that we haven't really seen this year. And it, it did kind of stunt Fulham's attacking prowess in that final third for the beginning of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, that's credit to Millwall, again, of doing their research because it wasn't happening on the, on the other side with with uh, Sessegnon um, on the left-hand side. Um and, you know, that's credit to Millwall as well. And, you know, it does it does show that, you know, sometimes we do come up, come up against a team that our usual channels are going to be stifled. And for the first half, there was there were points where it was like, are we actually going to break this this Millwall team down? Are we going to get through that Millwall? Yeah, first half an hour, we had plenty of possession, but it was in areas where it wasn't going to fit in Millwall at all. And it wasn't until sort of that, 35 to 40 minute mark that we really started to create those chances and there was a a, a very there was a, a cross that uh, Mitrovic headed just over the bar there was a whip cross that sort of bobbled around in the area and no one could put it home and then there was target shot as well it was the three main um, opportunities that Fulham had in the first half I think one thing that we need to we need to really highlight here is that Millwall particularly in the first half were really good at shutting down space rather than shutting down people because as as we know Fulham play into space more often than not and it's space in wide areas, and they were really good at firstly getting a, a player close to the to the player that had the ball, but then also getting a player in a position where he could shut both the space and the man down as well. So it really stifled Fulham. We had, as I say, a lot of possession, but it was often in areas where it was never going to hurt Millwall, and in fact it was quite passive because we just ended up playing around that middle third. Let's go back quickly to the, the Millwall chances at the start of the game. That first um, header, which obviously crashes off the bar, at first looked unlucky. In hindsight, an unbelievable save from Marcus Benelli. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, you know, when you slow it down, you can see how good a save it was. But that's when you slow it down. When, you, when it's at normal speed, you realise the reactions of Marcus Benelli to get a decent hand to it as well is quite extraordinary and a sign of a of a of a young keeper um making his way and getting more experience as he goes along and you know it what it should have been a warning sign for Fulham to be more aggressive uh, at defending corners as we see from later on in the half that you know some of those charts, some of those set pieces weren't defended as well as we could have done i think we in the first sort of 15 20 minutes we really really struggled to stop them getting in the crosses it, was, it should have been noted from much earlier from our preparation and research into the game that their wingers cut back onto their favoured foot and the fact that they like to get across in early because it means the physical partnership of Gregory and, and Morrison can can go two on two of the centre-backs. They caught us out so many times there and credit where credit's due to bets in that he commanded his box magnificently from start to finish, um, especially in that first half. He was certainly up for the battle, that was for sure. Mm. More so probably than our defensive midfield um pairing or three if you can call it that because the amount of times that you know Millwall literally as soon as they got the ball in a, in you know um, towards the halfway line they were pumping it long to Steve Morrison and although that Steve Morrison didn't necessarily win every single ball but but um, the second ball was almost entirely won by the uh, midfield two of Millwall mm. It was interesting, and to just touch on that, you know, George Savile, especially in the middle, did did really well first half at, at shutting down what is potentially the best midfield in you know in the championship right now. And and Millwall's four four two could have been overwhelmed by you know Fulham's shape, and 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 often we've seen our three man midfield really sort of just absolutely run the show when they're faced with a midfield pairing. That didn't happen in the first half, which it was just something sort of rare to Fulham and not something we see every day. Well, I think there's definitely a game plan at, at mind here. I think Jukanovic and the team knew that Millwall were going to come out and press them really, really high and as hard and as, hard and as physical as they could. But there's only a certain amount of time that you could do that for before it starts to take its toll. And towards the end of that first half, we started to see more openings um, happen, especially in wide areas, through um, balls through the middle and into the channel. And then obviously at the start of the second half, we started to really boss possession. I think that's because... Fulham sort of understood what Millwall were going to do. They were going to get in their face and they were going to be physical. But that physicality can only last for so long, so it's all about drawing them out. And I think that's what Fulham done in the, in the first half really well was, though the possession might have been seen as passive, it was actually doing a, a very good job because it meant that Savile and his midfield partner, who I believe was Williams, 
were sort of doing doggies for the most part uh, for the half. And uh, the only real opportunities they were having was from Jake uh, Cooper and uh, Hutchinson with their long balls down the channel to Morrison and Gregory, who were trying their best to hold it up. Yeah, well, let's touch back on the goal quickly. Um, well, there was disallowed for, for Millwall. The correct decision, do we feel? I mean, there's there's a lot of physicality in there. And, and afterwards, you know, Harris said that he felt that that was the, the turning point in which, in which the game hinged. Good decision? Bad decision? Oh, absolutely a good decision. And there's no bias behind that. Um, I haven't seen what the pundits said afterwards, uh, their reaction to it, but it was absolutely the right decision. He's climbing all over um, Matty Target, I believe it was, it is, yeah. memory serves. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I can see why Neil Harris would be upset, but it's quite clearly a foul. Yeah, I, I can't... I, I can only echo Farrell's sentiment there because... For me, being there at the ten in real time, you see the ball, you see uh, target getting absolutely manhandled, and the ball flying in afterwards, and everyone going crazy. And you're sat there thinking, if that's not a foul, then I don't know what is, because it was so clear. The contact there is so clear that the referee has no no opportunity, no other um, sort of opportunity but to give it. He almost drove Matty Target into the ground. Yeah, it was a strange one because there was obviously, obviously the ref pointed back towards the spot while giving yeah, a free yeah, yeah. to Fulham. The goal music played not once but twice. Uh, they played it, stopped it, played it again, stopped it, and then a free kick was given. But also, like something that's reasonably interesting is obviously it was a Premier League referee, um, and I didn't think he was brilliant. I didn't think he was poor either. I, I thought he had a reasonably average game, if, if, if I'm honest. I thought he let it flow quite well. Yeah. For the most part. But a lot of Millwall uh, have come out and said that the referee gave you everything. Does that stem from a Premier League referee having more of a sense of a foul than, say, a, a lower league referee? Or, uh, the you know, the threshold, let's say, for a foul is, you know, something different in the Premier League than it is for in the Championship? For I, I, I would say that perhaps that you may have to look at the, maybe the quality and the physicality of the of the players between the Championship and the Premier League. In the Premier League, they're going to be hitting harder, being quicker, and things that would necessarily look late um, in the Championship may not so in the Premier League, for example, because yeah. the players are are quicker and stronger up there. It's just it's just a fact of life. Um, and maybe that Andre Mariner, yeah. Andre Mariner is just you know used to that kind of. Um, contact being made now now and again and i've got i've got to say there was nothing really that s- sticks out for me that that the referee had a bad performance on friday yeah. night that's what i mean he didn't he, i didn't think the referee was the main cause here or there but there's been a lot of talk on social mm. media about that and i just thought it was yeah. an interesting point that obviously in the in the premier league you know you know physical attack you know there's more like you say it's quicker and faster and often things look different but but also there's more scope to if there's a foul and you know it's a shoulder to shoulder or a, you know someone's coming late you know barging someone it's more likely to be a foul on a more technical player than it is on a you know on a championship shoulder to shoulder yeah. for example and you know mill do have their roughhouse tactics and they do you know try and protect the ball when they do have it better than some other teams that I've seen this season. But when they're off the ball, they're going to be putting bigger challenges in now and now and again. But that's not to say that there were any real malicious tackles going in. We'll yeah. obviously go on to a certain Mr. Cahill later. But, you know, there was, no, there was nothing tied to say that I would say that they were a dirty team and therefore there was nothing really that Andre Mariner had to really deal with in that sense to kind of try and calm things down. I thought the game flowed really, really well. There was nothing really breaking up. It was quite obvious that none of the Millwall players and the manager was keen to give the ball back to any Fulham player when it was our throw-in or free kick, though. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I suppose that's kind of part of the intimidating nature of the mm. den, no? That's championship football at its, yeah, at its championship level. If the role was reversed, I, you know, it, it would be the same, wouldn't it? I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on how you felt at half-time. Uh, because I remember speaking to people at half-time and being like, we're under the cosh here. This isn't, you know, we're not playing particularly well. Yeah, we're keeping the ball a bit. And, and it did open up, like you say, in the, you know, 35 minute onwards. And, and it did start to, to to become a little bit more open. And a target dragged one wide, hit the bar. Mitrovic bundled one wide. But there wasn't any really clear-cut chances of Fulham. What were your, were your thoughts at the break, Ben? At the break, I sort of, I felt knackered because of all the singing that we had and the, just the intense atmosphere at the den and, and the fact that we were basically on the back foot from from the moment the whistle blew until sort of, as you say, 35 minutes in. So I just sort of took half time to sit there and take stock of what I'd seen and 
for me, it was just a case of we have to get Mitrovic in the game a little bit more because I felt he was isolated. And we've certainly done that in the second half. We came out and Sessegnon and Piazon played much closer to uh, Mitrovic and it felt like we pushed Johansson on a little bit more. Um, but at half time, I was I was nervous. Yeah, I, I can't I can't lie. I thought their physicality was getting the better of us at the back. I thought um, they had Reem on the back foot quite a lot, but I thought he played really really well throughout the full ninety. Um, I just thought the match mismatch of Gregory and Morrison on the fullbacks could have been the the really deciding factor for Fulham. Um, and I was scared that if they started in the same way that they started the first half and got an early goal, that it could well be the end of twenty one unbeaten games. Yeah, absolutely. I I do echo Ben what Ben's saying to a certain extent. I the only thing that I would say is that I was confident that you know a forty a not so good forty five minutes um, could actually turn into a not so good ninety minutes just because it would just be so out of character for this team to to not have a good performance. Yeah, it's it's amazing how consistent this Fulham team are, and that's what I felt at halftime, and I thought. Regardless of the result, at the end of at the end of the game, I thought it was still it would actually end up being a good performance in the end. It's kind of you know potentially a little bit obvious, but how important is that Sessegnon goal at the start of the second half for making the game open up? Massively so, because as soon as he puts that goal in, Millwall went longer and more desperate than they were before. They there were periods in the first half where Millwall were keeping it fairly well. You know they were putting pressure on us and they, they had a few nice passing sequences. But as soon as that first goal went in. And I don't think, from memory, they even touched the ball other than when Jordan Archer... Um, spilled it. Spills it to yeah. Sessegnon. It got more desperate. Their sort of thinking went longer. They may as well not have had a midfield two or four at that point because everything was just going over the top of them. And they were looking to play the margins and hold the ball as much as possible, but we just weren't letting them. And I think that um, we used the ball in a way that no other team could have competed with us on that night. That second half, after that goal... All nerves were settled and it was like confidence had just taken a massive boost because no no team could have got near us. That is, that is the the game we played in the second half on Friday was as close to a Premier League team as I've, I've seen Fulham since we've been back in the, in the Championship division. And I don't think anyone in the bottom half of the Premier League would have been able to deal with us on that second half there. Barney Rone of um, The Guardian came out and said that he, Fulham were the best team he's seen at the Den in years, including Premier League visitors for FA Cup, you know, ties, and uh, which obviously speaks volumes about how good that second half was. But let's start with Sessegnon. What a finish! Yeah, absolutely. It's an incredible little finish. Like that takes that takes experience. It's amazing from a seventeen-year-old that we we talk about experience, but he's got that experience that he was able to know. That he, I know I'm going to play it underneath the keeper through his legs from that angle. A lot of other players would have tried and blasted it or placed it in a certain other place, but it's just unreal that he knows I'm going to put it there. He has got to be our best finisher in the, in, in the team. But the thing is, though, is it is it that shocking that we've seen that finish from sets? Because if you look at the majority of his goals from yeah. this year, they have been from around about that angle. Mm, the, one against, shocking. The, the one against Derby, there's a couple against Sheffield United, there's this one. There's the one he nearly put away on 80 minutes that's even, and even tighter oh, and even, angle yeah, yeah. than the one he scored. And it just flicks past Jordan Archer's post. Right. Um, unbelievable finish from the boy. I'm not he shocked was, by anything immense. he does anymore. But no. it, it's just one, it's also really nice to see him back on the score sheet. Yeah, yeah. I, know he's, I know it seems mad to be like, oh, he's only had four, what, four games without a goal, but it still seems, mm. it seems like an eternity for, for someone who was scoring so freely you know, in, that, in that period beforehand. But obviously, how quick is he to react to that shot? And, you know, he has, realistically, there's no right for, for Archer to spill that. It's a, you know, it's a decent strike from yeah. Mitrovic, but you it's know, poor keeping. It's yeah, bad yeah. keeping, but for Sessegnon to even be switched on enough to be thinking about that being spilled is, is incredible. There's been a few times in the past month or two that I have seen Bettinelli make a similar kind of spill, but he's been able to get up and grab it because opposing attackers haven't looked alive to it. Whereas, you know, if Sessegnon was playing for, for, for other teams, maybe we would have seen a, a couple more goals against us, um, tap-ins from a Bettinelli spill. But, you know, luckily for us, that hasn't been the case. Um, but, yeah, Jordan Archer, you know, he probably never expected another championship player to be doing that. And unfortunately yeah. for him... He didn't realise that Ryan Sessegnon was on the team. Well, you know, moving on from from the boy wonder himself to uh, the midfield general, and K-Mac bangs in a second after leaving George Saville flat on his ass. And um, 
spectacular, no? I mean, even if a new, I mean, when you've when I've watched it back now, the you can actually hear that sort of half second to a second of kind of like, oh my god, he's actually scored a goal. We might as well celebrate because no one expected him to absolutely, you know, blaps one in from like thirty <laughs> yards. Um, and it's quite an incredible. It's not just an incredible finish, but an incredible setup as well. I remember that uh, the the memories for me are still so clear. Uh, although it's only just a few days away, but I can remember remember all the emotions of seeing him receive the ball and turn past Savile and just you know feeling that moment of when he glides past him and you just think, "Go on, absolutely hit that!" And he does. And I was sat you know in the far corner of the stand, and you can see the dip and the swerve on the ball. As it crashes into the net past Jordan Archer, who could only get managed to get a couple of fingertips on it, and the whole stand went absolutely crazy. It was that point you could feel all the tension that we did have was completely lifted. The volume increased tenfold. Like Fulham, like as we were discussing in the pub before this, that was the loudest we'd heard Fulham ever, and we just got even louder after that. And it was unbelievable. Dave Preston and I. Uh, Dave, who also helps out with the pod, we were sat together and we were just up in arms um, and just sliding around all over the shop. We ended up like four or five seats down from where we were. Unbelievable goal. And from it, from it to be from arguably one of the best players of the season, it was even sweeter. Um, for me, it was definitely the loudest. And, it, and I remember making a note about five minutes later, it was probably the loudest, uh, you're just too good to be true, yeah. chant I've ever experienced especially at a Fulham away game um you know unfortunately there was a victim and that was my shirt that I was wearing <laughs> that night because some some geezer uh, at the row in front of me um decided to turn around and grab me but I only managed to get my shirt and tear every single button apart from the top two <laughs> I'm quite into that it's yeah. quite a good quite a good limbs that. yeah but unfortunately I was you know I was supposed to be going out that night and I looked to be wearing sort of like half a shirt half a shirt for the rest of the night I think it's just one of those where you you know I was going to talk about this at the end of the game but seeing as we're on it we, we may as well crack on um, the and how the atmosphere at the den made you raise your game almost and you know you hear that kind of noise that Mill will make and it's obviously extremely impressive but like also you know you're like I want to be heard too I want you know this is a you know we're here and there's a lot of us and we're here to make some noise as you know as much as anyone else is I was going to say about the pub beforehand if anyone went to the George to, to see what went on it was almost like I haven't seen a pub like that since Hamburg it was just a massive obviously it was a nice day which helped and it was a massive courtyard and it was just all Fulham and it was like you know it is it, very you know good I suppose is the easy word it's, it's good to see that kind of thing and obviously the kind of momentum with this team and the momentum with the fan base at the moment is obviously something that we need to celebrate but you know ultimately how much Fulham raised their game to compete with Millwall is testament to how you know good these fans are feeling and also like a new you know kind of generation if you will of Fulham fans really starting to find their voice yeah all of those factors considered it almost created a perfect storm for, for not just the fans, but the players as well. You think about the anticipation leading up to the game from both sets of supporters, that both sets of supporters are both saying, look, we're, we're here to challenge and we're here to win. And Millwall fans were like that and, and Fulham fans were like that. And they both believed that they were going to cause, you know, something special that night. And, you know, luckily for us, it, it went, fell, our, fell our way. And, you know, we hope that, that the all of that, all of those factors that went through the supporters to raise their game in terms of singing louder and singing prouder was infectious towards the players who yeah. is, you know, feeding off that. But also, you know, it's nice to the, hopefully that that will come back next Friday under the lights at home and we can, you know, try and you know make that kind of atmosphere again. And obviously it's not ever going to be the same at home as it is away. And, and that's, a you know, just a fact of it, to be honest. But, you know, the, the cottage should be flying next mm. Friday. Well, I mean, let's just see what happens tomorrow evening. If there's a positive re result um, in terms of Cardiff tomorrow night, then Friday should be absolutely Cauldron. popping. Yeah. So let's just quickly finish off with, with Alexander Mitrovic finishing the job, I suppose. Um, Thomas Callas turns into to Franz Beckenbauer for five minutes, to, to quote Gentleman <laughs> Jim, uh, and just sort of marauds through the entire, uh, entire Millwall team. We've given Thomas Callas loads of stick 
for sometimes just wandering out of defence and having absolutely no idea what to do with the ball. But this was different gravy, Ben. It was fantastic composure from him to walk it basically the half one half of the pitch unchallenged. Now, he skips past a couple of, of um, uh, tackles from Millwall players and that's a wonderful ball across his body uh, into the path of Mitrovic who can only slot it in the top corner. And I thought Callas was actually really good when he came on, although very limited showing. He, he won a couple in the air well. He passed well and then obviously that fantastic run for the goal. Um, I was a bit scared when I saw Adoy in there against two massive strikers, but I think Adoy held, held himself up well. Um, I did sort of think that Catalas maybe could have come in a little bit earlier, and I think us playing with three at the back and a, and, a, and the wing backs was actually quite a good fit against the middle side that tried to chuck everything at us in the last 25 minutes of the game. Um, yeah, I think Mitrovic's finish was emphatic. I thought Mitrovic, for the most part, played really well, and even better when we went 1-0 up. He was finding the ball in, in dangerous areas. He was spreading the ball really well. And he just, yeah, I think it's something that he hasn't really shown to us before. It was just his general football intelligence came out came out in that second half display more than ever. There's so much to talk about with that goal. You know, you talk about Callas's run and then just a sly little pass to it. So perfectly weighted pass to Mitrovic. All he needs to do is touch and bang in goal. You know, it's a hell of a finish. Yeah. That's taking that's taking away yeah. from from what Mitrovic has done here. He's curled an absolute peach. Dot yeah. bins. There's so much to talk about, but I think Millwall sums up brilliantly. 89 minutes goal. Fulham make it three as Mitrovic finished smartly from a close range. <laughs> what were they watching? You know, nothing to do with the build up or nothing to do with the goal. Let's just put anything down. Well, there we are. That's the uh, that was the Lions' reaction. Um, let's just quickly touch on uh, Tim Cahill who had a bit of a, a an odd cameo, if you will, came on, sort of elbowed, elbowed Ryan Fredericks in the face, stamped on Tom Kearney, and then then almost got knocked out by Mitrovic, and then gave Mitrovic a hug at the end, and that was pretty much all that he did. It was a really strange cameo from Tim Cahill, and from my personal point of view, I've never really seen him as that sort of player, but yeah. reading through the comments on social... Quite a lot of people actually comment on how much of a thug he is, and even though the, the Australian fans of both clubs involved in the in the match on Friday were saying that actually Tim Cahill's actually got a bit of a reputation for this, and I don't think he done himself any favours whatsoever. This is a man that really, really struggled for game time in Australia, rejoined Millwall in a hope to go to the World Cup, and has done nothing there apart from get very limited minutes and show himself up in front of the cameras he's on been, Sky Sports. I think he's been booked four times in eight cameo appearances, yeah, which isn't particularly good showing, he, really. He didn't get anywhere near the ball on Friday. He didn't look like threatening in any way, and he just seems so far off the pace. I really wouldn't be surprised if he didn't end up at the World Cup. And it seems like he's consigned to that, and he was consigned to Millwall losing, so he took his frustrations out on Fredericks with what can only be described as a really cynical and horrible elbow um, I mean, close vicinity to a stand that was really housed with quite a lot of fans who really were baying for Fulham's blood by the end of this. And then a horrible stamp on Tom Kenny that actually could have been more than just a yellow. And probably rightly should have if Marcus Alonso has been a three, has had a free game bound for a similar incident, which is a stamp down the back of the calf. Well, that was kind of the last action of the the game as a whole. And, and Cahill, well, we'll look to see what the retrospective action will be. Uh, there's been a little bit of cause for retrospective action on Mitrovic, who um, took Cahill out with a, with a weird sort of swing of the arm, if you will. But hopefully we probably won't hear any more about that. And I think that if we get to Friday's game without hearing any more, then that one is very much done for good. Well, let's talk about Cardiff. Um, they we have to. yeah I know I think I think we do yeah <laughs> I think part of one of those things that we do have to talk about Cardiff <laughs> Cardiff managed to sort of grind their way to another victory on Saturday night um, against what can only be described as quite a poor Nottingham Forest side what was your take on the game Farrell? God, it was quite an interesting one we all spoke last week how Forest quite famously haven't scored a goal in six or seven yeah, games. They haven't even taken any shots in six or seven games. Yeah. They're really poor. And um, but they, you know, I hadn't watched all of those games. I don't have the time, unfortunately. But what I saw of Forest was actually largely promising. They did work it well into some decent areas, and they probably should have scored two or three times on the night. Um, you know, the tails were up when um, Bridcut finished smartly. And, you know, they probably should have had another as well, but they obviously just couldn't handle Cardiff's 
um, prowess from set pieces, unfortunately. And you know who was really largely impressive with them was Aaron Gunnison. Yeah, he was. Re- he does not not want Cardiff to get promoted. I've never seen a man more possessed with winning as many tackles as possible and trying to get on the end of things, especially from corners. It's a, a very strange one because Forrest haven't been very good. It is, is kind of the, the long-term thoughts of, of most people in the division and they still managed to give Cardiff quite a good game. And is that positive for Fulham or is it negative that Cardiff have come out of a game where a team played quite well against them and still managed to sort of scrape their way to three points? Well, you know, it, it, I think it's a couple of those things. And, you know, maybe it's testament, although it gripes me to say, maybe it's testament to Warnock's ability to get the best out of yeah. out of an average team. And, you know, they are scoring, they are going to their strength. They are scoring a lot of set pieces, goals. They are scoring a lot of bump, bundles in from, uh, from long balls into the box. But that's what they do well. And... You know, when we've played against them, I remember the, the what was it, the away leg when we were actually not on particularly good form. I think we only just come out of a, slump. Uh, a bit of a slump. It was about the second or third game of this unbeaten run, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. And you know, we played well against them and we we won. But you know, that we're a much better team than a lot of other teams in this division. It goes without saying, and we can punish a team like Cardiff. Unfortunately, not many other teams can. So let's talk about their game tomorrow night. It seems the, the the logical and reasonable thing to do. They played Derby County in a game which has got more traction than perhaps it deserved. Obviously, it was always going to be a reasonably big game with two top six sides playing each other. But in terms of how this has played out with the weather conditions, with the managers going at each other, with the players going at each other, how much of a factor is that going to play in, in, in tomorrow night's fixture? It adds a little bit of bite to a fixture that probably is always going to be one that's tightly contested anyway because Derby now are doing their very own um, falling apart um, like Leeds did last season, but Derby are just doing it even worse. Um, I think Derby are really going to need to step up their form if they want to get anywhere close to the playoffs and this is as as good a time to start it. I think there'll be a bit of needle in this game, particularly uh, with Richard Keogh and Sean Morrison, if I'm not not, uh, mistaken. Um, and I think Warnock will try his best to try and ruffle the three feathers before kickoff, and probably during the match as well. And I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of scene that was similar to the one he had with Nuno the other day, actually, because it's the type of bloke he is, isn't it? I think there's, this game is crying out for red cards. I, um, I think I think Tom Huddleston will end up two-footing someone. You know, I'm kind of not Maybe anti Neil that Warnock. either. Um, it, it's That'd a funny nice. one. Warnock's already started the needle by saying I, he asked. They was asked after the game against Forest, "Are you looking forward to the game against Derby?" And he said, "Weather permitting," um, which was quite funny, but also mm. you know, you know, one of those things. And you know, Gary Rowett, you know, much as Derby are falling apart to a point, is a good manager mm. and and does have qualities which you know you really do hope that could win this game. And to be honest, this is kind of last chance saloon for Derby. If they don't win this, yeah, they're outside sure of the playoffs with two really difficult games to play. And they're, you know, they're going to be in real trouble. So as in that, you know, hope you'd hope that Pride Park after all that's been said and done in this game is going to be an absolute cauldron tomorrow night. Yeah, and you'd hope so from our perspective. And you hope that also that Gary Rowett will basically be saying to his players, "Look, it's do or die now." If if we lose this game, we're out. If Tom, if if Derby didn't have a squad as old as they did in the in the main um, parts where you win promotion, i.e. midfield and defence, they'd be a top team. They really would. They've they've got a, a lot of talent there, especially in like Vidra. Uh, Tom Lawrence is a great player as well, and they've got a, a countless other players who are, are good quality of the, in this league. But the squad is just old. It's really old. You look at the likes of Huddleston's quite an old player, Joe Ledley, uh, Nugent. Richard Keogh in himself is also quite an old guy, and they've got Carson in goal still, who's knocking around now. Like if they if they had a slightly younger core to that squad, they'd be they'd be well up in the playoffs. It's a, a funny old game. That experience, though, I suppose, does flip to say that you say to these players, "This is it. You've got one chance to get promoted mm. back to the Premier League." And if you don't, you know, if you don't win these games, it, it's it's over. Your careers are done, boys. Like I suppose. That adds an extra edge as well, which is mm. hopefully something they'll play to our strengths tomorrow. Jack, can you do the team talk then tomorrow? Yeah, Sounds I mean, like I may as well. Up. I may as well go go yeah. and just do Gary Rowett's job. I think um, it, it's a funny one. Obviously, we're all hoping for a derby victory, but you know, if Cardiff slip up here or against Hull on Saturday, 
then we're going to go in to the final game, as long as we beat Sunderland Touchwood, with something to play for. And that can only be a good thing, surely? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, Cardiff still need to get the job done as much as any other team. And there's still a lot of football to be played. And stranger things have happened. Sean Aluko scoring a last-minute winner for Reading at, oh. at, at the Cardiff City Stadium. Oh, my God. That Chris, would just be the best thing for Chris me Chris Martin scoring a last-minute winner <laughs> against Chris Both revealing signed Fulham shirts yeah. over their heads. It's a, it's a funny one. Well, maybe we should move on to some of the questions uh, for, that we've got in the post bag this week. We uh, put out the question shout a little bit earlier this week, so there are a fair amount of things kicking about. So I'm going to throw this to our very own Ben Jarman. Thanks, Jack. We've had uh, a lot of questions this week, and I think we're going to look at Twitter as the main part uh, from where we get these questions from. Um, we'll start with uh, quite uh, a tasty one, and this has come from, from Ian Pryor, Ian Pryor12, who says, Playing as we have since December, where, where might we hypothetically have finished in this season's Premier League? And I'll give that one to Farrell straight away. Ooh, I like him tasty. Um, considering we've got a, um, uh, you know, a little bit of a tester with the FA Cup, um, fixture uh, against Southampton earlier on the season. I've got to say, on the day, we probably were the better team, even though the result didn't go that way. Um, you know, we had more possession, we were a bit more incisive. Um, but, you know, the on the day that Southampton managed to get the result, and they're sitting not very pretty in 19th at the moment, and, you know, giving them a pretty good game. And Ever since then, we Fulham have been really, 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 really good. Since then, that you know, if they if they decide if Southampton played us now, we'd probably beat them. Um, but to say that we're probably on a par with them is a bit more fair. So I would probably say that we're in a bit of a relegation battle, maybe in the just above the top three. I think something's interesting to note is that when we played Southampton at the time, we didn't have Alexander Mitrovic up front. Mm. And the change in style since Mitrovic has come into this team is obviously something that's extremely important to us and also really, you know, has changed the way that Fulham set up. So I think that, I think we'd maybe be a little bit above that. I think that there are worse teams in the Premier League than we are right now. And especially playing the kind of football that we have, I think that we could probably have, uh, have done a job on a fair amount of those lower-end Premier League teams. And any team that really wanted to give us space. I mean, you look at the likes of you know, Everton, who haven't had a particularly good season. Uh, and the, the teams that have really caused them problems are the teams that have gone at them and really given them a game. And under Slavisa's system, there isn't really room for sitting back and trying to absorb pressure. Yes, we would have lost a lot of games you know, by heavy margins. Mm. But I think we would have won a fair amount as well. And I think that ultimately we would have probably stayed up reasonably comfortably in this year's Premier League, especially because there are so many poor teams. And they're so close as well. It is a bit ridiculous, actually, because when you when you actually look at it, Burnley were sitting pretty on 53 points, 53 points in seventh, and their closest one after that is Leicester, nine points adrift of them in eighth. And then, then there's only 42 about... 42 points is eighth. Uh, 44 points. We used to say that 40 points was enough to keep you up. Yeah, I know. It's a bit... Ju- and, then it's, and then it's like Everton, 42. There's like just over 10 points separating Leicester in eighth and Swansea in 17th. So, yeah. you know, just above the relegation zone could actually mean eighth, almost European qualification. And so for the next question, we'll go for one from um, Julian Hare at Julian Hare 17. Uh, thanks for sending this in. And it says... With it looking increasingly likely we'll be in the playoffs, is there a concern that we could end up facing Brentford? They seem to have all the momentum and the easiest run-in of teams targeting sixth. I guess Julian hasn't really finished off a question here, so I'll, I'll put one in as well. Do you see Brentford as the team that we should be most scared of in the, Premier, in, in the, in the playoffs to get to the Premier League or not? It's definitely the team that I'm most wary of, um, and and that's not even from a, you know, a romantic or personal perspective. I, I think that Brentford are the only team really that have come to both the cottage and us to them and caused us serious problems. And we just there's something about them that we just can't seem to get through. And even in the kind of form of our lives and and, and playing with a squad that's quite clearly more talented than theirs, we still managed to throw away you know a late lead against them and. And we didn't play particularly well against Brentford. You know, it, the honest truth is that they deserved that point. It's, you know, obviously always gutting to concede late like that, especially against what you could call local rivals. But it's just ultimately 
you know, there's something about them that seems to get completely in our heads. And whether that's the way they line up, whether the way they go man to man with us, we don't like traveling to Griffin Park. We don't like it when they come to us. And I don't think that kind of pressure on top of the playoffs, I think is something that we could really do with avoiding. Yeah, it's almost like we have a Brentford hoodoo, which we covered uh, last time out. And unfortunately, I've got to agree that Brentford are one of, if not the teams that I would like to avoid in the playoffs if it comes down to that. Uh, from a personal perspective, I'm really scared of Brentford. I think that they play some wonderful football. And for me, that was the biggest um, banana skin I saw in this run of uh, games towards the end of the season where we could we could perhaps either potentially lose this unbeaten run or as it was back when I asked a question on Twitter about banana skins, whether we could potentially slip outside the playoffs. Obviously, that's not going to happen now, but I think Brentford are our biggest threat. Although I'm also very, very worried about Middlesbrough, who seem to be um, picking up a lot of points recently. They've got Adama Traore, and Pulis just loves to shit out on teams. So, um, yeah, quite scared about them. Next question we'll go from uh, is from Jack Copeland, at Jack A. Copeland on Twitter. He says, everyone, including myself included, keeps saying how lucky Cardiff are. But we're perhaps not giving them enough credit for their mental game. Grinding out results when the pressure is on, something we failed to do against Brentford. 100%. I don't like Warnock, but you have to give credit where credit's due, and he's getting results. And it's not you know, often pretty. As you look at the kind of thing against Cardiff, uh, against Wolves, and where he you know, ac- accused uh, Nuno of, of lacking class, and, and given Warnock's history, that's exceptionally like, you know, it's uh, the word hypocritical um but it's ultimately you know you have to give him credit where credit is due and and they have done well this season and there hasn't really been a period where cardiff have just completely fallen away they've you know had bad results and they've bounced back from them they've grind out results when they weren't very good they've you've made things happen and and you have to you know begrudgingly respect that and what Warnock's done is he's made it very much a us-against-the-world mentality, and he thinks he's made the players feel like everyone hates them and no-one wants them to go up. And what he's done is breed a real sense of fighting for each other at Cardiff, and that's what's getting them these results. They are absolutely you know, battering each other into the ground, and we spoke about Gunnarsson earlier, you know, not missing tackles and just like pelting around the pitch, making ridiculous challenges. You know, That's kind of what you need, and, and he's, he's, he's developed that kind of calibre and, and quality within the squad. It's almost the the epitome of Neil Warnock on the pitch, really. And, you know, I've got to admit, and probably all of the pod are are guilty, that earlier on in the season when we were talking about the teams that would still be up there come at the end of the season, we all said Cardiff would fall away. And they didn't. They have not gone away. They're still up there. And they're now in the driving seat for the second promotion spot. I think a lot has to be given, of credit should be given towards Cardiff's mental side of their game. I think a lot of football nowadays, especially in the modern times, is about being mentally, um, you know, mentally fit, I guess, um, in terms of not having that fatigue and the loss of concentration across 90 minutes. You need a team there that is going to be mentally strong for that duration of the game and to get out of circumstances where your back is up against the wall. And, Cardiff always seems to be in a position where if they do go behind, they always seem to come back to win. And ever since they go in 1-0 up at the break or in the lead at the break, they've they've um, always gone on to win. And I think that's 16 times now they've done this this season. So a lot of it comes down to mentality. I think something you know to add to this is the fact that those two missed injury time penalties at Wolves we all thought that was it. They, they've got mm. to mentally collapse after that. You know, the, that kind of thing is almost impossible to come back from, having two penalties to, to save a point and, and then managing to miss them both. Uh, that's the kind of thing that can absolutely rock your boat, and it just hasn't. Yeah. You know, they've bounced back from that with a... They didn't play very well against Norwich the week after, but they ground out three points with, you know, what you know a little bit of luck, but mostly just, you know, hard graft. And, and that's how they've done it all season. And, you know, there's nothing to suggest that isn't going to get them to the Premier League right now. You know, but I think off to counter that, in terms from a Fulham perspective, there are games now um, in these last sort of run of 22 games that we would have succumbed to last year. Yeah, 100%. And we have gotten mentally much better. I think this Millwall game is, is the epitome of that because we were on the back foot, the crowd clearly against us, against a massively physical team, the one that tried to exploit all of our weak points from set pieces and from crosses. And we got out of it with a clean sheet, a comfortable 3-0 win, and we cemented our sort of intentions to go up 
We'll go for uh, a question here from uh, Rahil at Rahilovic on Twitter. He says, if we are promoted, do you think Slav will show loyalty to the players and only make two or three signings or will, or will he oversee a major revamp over the summer window? Going on the record that Slavisa has had in the in the couple of seasons we've now we've now seen him, um, he seems to be loyal to certain players, and but then it doesn't take a lot for other players to disappear from the ranks entirely. Um, you know, you think about Cabano, who you know was solidly in the team and he was quite fairly loyal to, is now com- almost completely disappeared. You know, um, from the team sheets altogether, week in week out. So it'll be interesting to see if we do go up, which players that he will be loyal to. I think on the large part, I think a sensible manager does tend to keep the nucleus of the team together going up, going up a league. But, you know, if there are players available who can strengthen certain positions, regardless of where it is, you know, there are better number 10s than Tom Kearney. And if a better one comes along, I'm sure that... Slav wouldn't think twice about replacing Tom Kearney. I'm not quite sure I would go that far, but I think your point in, in general is completely valid. You know, look at Brighton this year. They've gone up. You look at that squad and it's Duffy and Dunk who are their centre-backs last year. Gaitan Bong still playing at right-back. Yeah, Bruno, you know, who was captain and obviously was a bit of a cult figure, has kind of dropped out of the side a little bit here and there. He's featured, but not massively. He's the oldest outfield player in the Premier League. Yeah, I is, believe yeah. he is. You know, they strengthened in goal. Um, which was, you know, obvious that they needed to do, which is, you know, David Stockdale has a lot of qualities and a lot of calibre, but he, you know, obviously they thought he wasn't good enough for the, the Premier League and Chris Hewton was pretty straight up. He was like, you know what, we're selling Stockdale, we're going to bring in another keeper and that's, you know, that's helped them this year. They've stepped with Glenn Murray, but they've brought in quality talent in like Davy Proper and, and that kind of player and it, it's really worked for them and ultimately, while they're still looking over their shoulder a little bit, I fully expect Brighton to survive this season and, you know, it's got to that point where you, you look at the I think that Brighton really should be the model that, that Fulham looked to, to build on because that's a sensible team that went up, had a couple of goes at trying to get up, didn't make it, eventually got there and didn't throw you know, all the throw the baby out with the with the bathwater as the as the saying goes, but you know, kept the, the nucleus of their squad together and even players like Anthony Knockart, who was brilliant in the championship, was hasn't been brilliant in the Premier League. But has you know obviously is part of that squad and part of the very much the the mental side of that squad, especially given the sequence of events last year. Um, that he you know he's been still part of it, Amaso, and even when he hasn't been playing well, he's still been very much part of that community, and that's the kind of model that I feel like Slavisa is smart enough to adopt. Yeah, and you've got to look at other similar teams in situations like Burnley. You know, Sean Sean Dice has done an exceptional job. They got up a few years ago. They kept a lot of their team. They went down and pretty much sold next to no one. And then they came straight back up again. And those players that were their first time round of the Premier League are all still there pretty much, apart from the odd one or two. And but then you look at other teams who have done this, who have done differently. You know, you you look at Hull, who came up, had a fantastic um, time of it in the first half of the season because they bought anyone and everyone. But it's just not a sustainable model. You know, Sunderland got away with it for years and years and years, just changing changing their squad every single season and it finally caught up with them and now look at them. And they're in real trouble. Sunderland are in, like, not just as a as a football team, but as a club as a whole. Mm. Sunderland are in exceeding amounts of debt. Their, their owner wants to sell them, but no one wants to buy them. Mm. There's a, a very high chance of a club like Sunderland going into administration, which is sad. Well, Hull, because, the same thing happened with Hull and they, got take, they just got taken over. Yeah, they I know. Saved. It is saved, but it is sad that you know a club with as big a fan base and as big a history as Sunderland, you know, Sunderland are a big club, mm. can, can, that can happen to you. And it does show you that it can happen to everyone. And, you know, you look at these people screaming at the start of the year for us to just break FFP and sign everyone and, every, and anyone. And you look at the kind of damage that has done long term to a club like Sunderland, and it, it really is scary to think that those kind of things can happen to anyone. Well, um, just look at this season with Fulham. How many of the players that started on on uh, Friday night are new? Mitrovic, Target. Um, that's it. That's it. <laughs> they, there you go. I mean, that kind of kind of tells you all you need to know, really. Cool. Um, I'm not going to add anything to that because you guys have comprehensively uh, answered the question. <clears throat> so I'll go into the next one. Um, what, what we're going to do now is we're going to rattle through three or four. Quick what, what I'm looking for you guys to do is answer in one or two 
or maybe three words in your case, Farrell, questions. Uh, just give me answers that are like one or two or three words long and we'll just rattle through it like world football phone-in last five minutes style because Good that's vibes. the best thing ever. <laughs> okay, number one is from Nathan Vince who says, with Sean Kavanagh leaving, is there hope for Woodrow, Williams, Humphreys, Rodak and Kate in the future? No. Why? In three words? <laughs> you can have slightly longer for that. Um, I think that maybe a couple of the youngsters... The younger ones who haven't had first team experience might get a look in, but like so, some other ones, maybe probably not. It's just not cool. in Slavs. I think that cool. similarly, probably it's probably over for Woodrow and Williams. Humphreys maybe still young enough, but even then, I'm skeptical. Matthias Kate is the only one of those that I'd say has potentially got a, a long term future at the club. I feel like there's a couple uh, in our youth system right now that have probably outstripped the development of someone like Woodrow, Woodrow Williams, and Humphreys. Also, don't think Humphreys has got the capabilities and a temperament. temperament needed to be a professional footballer. I'm going to put myself out on the limb here. I've said it to you guys before. I think he'll be released before he makes another first-team appearance. Uh, second question is, if you could pick one player from Tigger's Division 1 team to slot into this team, who would it be uh, and why? Who's it from? Uh, it's from Vincent Leyenda. Cool. Which is legend in Spanish. Great. Fair Farrell. <laughs> From Tigana's team. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's a toughie. Bert Morte. Yeah, that was going to be my answer. The right wing is definitely the problem position. Yeah, it's uh, it's the missing piece to the jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? I'd also go for Bert Morte. Uh, this one is also quite good, and it's from Luca Lele, um, who often gives some questions, so thanks for that, Luke. He says, um, who would win in a bare-knuckle fight between Kevin McDonald and Dixon Atuhu? Kevin McDonald. Just because, like, like I can imagine him just going absolutely like crazy. Like, I can imagine the man just losing the plot uh, and going full on Braveheart and the gang. I think mm, I'd go Big Dick Dixon or Tuhu. <laughs> I would probably go for Kevin McDonald just purely because he's Scottish. Um, he's definitely done bare knuckle boxing in his in his time, hasn't he? Dixon oh, or probably hasn't. <laughs> The Motherwell Academy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Scary. Last one comes from uh, at Ben Jarman. It's uh, how many goals did Jack Collins really score against Fulham Focus this weekend? Three or four? Um, he actually scored more goals than accumulated yards that he scored from. <laughs> <laughs> it was true. The answer is four. <laughs> we, will, we will shortly be releasing, releasing some uh, highlights of the game, so you'll be able to make up your mind if Jack's first goal was perhaps the most hideous own goal ever, or um, <laughs> he actually meant it. If Ryan Fredericks can claim that first goal against QPR this season, mm. then I am 100% having that first goal against Fulham Focus. <laughs> um, I think that's probably about it, Benjamin. We'll do one more, um, just because we get asked by Cabano every, at Cabano every week, but with an X instead of the A. Does Cabano have a future at Fulham? Yes, Farrell, or, or no, Jack? Yes. Yes. I also think yes, but as an impact sub. So you can stop sending us that every week now. Yeah. Thank you. We, we, we like Cabano. We really like him. We want him to have a future. Yeah. Well, he does. It's just on the subs bench, though. Yeah. I think this guy just wants an excuse to change his Twitter handle. Maybe, maybe. Right, well, that is probably all we've got time for on, on this week's Fulhamish. It's been a pleasure. We've gone freestyle today, which has been a little bit rogue, but we hope it's been a little bit more conversational, a bit more fun. Um, and the, all that is left to do is to name the podcast. And as we've split secretarial duties today, anyone... Uh, it's anyone's ball court. I know we didn't include it in the original free word review, but please can we have Lions, Mitrovic and the wardrobe? <laughs> Farrell, have you got anything I, to raise? No, I'm, I'm all for it. Lion, The Lion, Mitrovic and the wardrobe. Or maybe we could just do... Eesh. Yeah, I, I think I think we will we'll give that we'll give that pod title a whirl and, and see what the the responses are like. Um, all that's left for me to do is say thank you very much to Farrell Monk. Big up. Thank you very much, Ben Jarman. Thank you, Jack Collins. I've been Jack Collins. This has been the Fulhamish Podcast. You whites. What was your take on the game, Ben? Don't I didn't watch it. I, I watched it, sorry. <laughs> <laughs>